Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. A very special guest on the show this time is Craig Hefner, the head of school at Covenant School in Huntington, West Virginia in the States. Craig has a new book out from InterVarsity Press, IVP America, and it's called Kierkegaard and the Changelessness of God. And I quote, Danish theologian and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard was not afraid to express his opinions. Indeed, he wasn't, by all accounts. At a time when many of his contemporaries were questioning the classical doctrine of God, Kierkegaard swam against the stream by maintaining orthodox Christian beliefs, end of quote. Kierkegaard was a great defender of the doctrine of divine immutability, the idea of the changelessness of God. And we're going to find it all about divine immutability and Kierkegaard. Uh, and uh, so we welcome, we welcome Craig from the States. Hi, Craig. How are you? Hi, good. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to meet you. Oh, it's a, pl- it's a pleasure. I have to, as I said to you pre-interview, I know next to nothing about Kierkegaard, and everything I know is from, from, from your book. So there we go. Now, can we ask, first of all, who was Kierkegaard? He died unbelievably young, didn't he? Was he only about he 42 or something? Very young. Uh, that's right. Yeah, he was born, let's see, uh, 1813, uh, died 1855. So if you're quick on math, you could figure out the age there. I think you're right. 42. Um, he very, very short life, uh, relatively speaking. And of course, in the course of his life, he wrote around 30 books. Um, it's hard to count some of his books, how, how it would, how, how to count them exactly, but around 30 books, uh, a huge wealth of journals and diaries that we have to read. So just prolific writer. Uh, so significant impact on the kind of philosophical and theological, uh, world, but Short, short little life. And most of them do. You think of the the really great geniuses. I mean, you think of the the composers and music. Mozart and Schubert dead by what the mid thirties. I think both of them, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, and just a time period. Kierkegaard, eighteen thirteen. So he's coming. He must be starting to write at the, the sort of in the towards the end of the Romantic period in Europe. Is that right? About eighteen eighteen thirties. Uh, yeah, that's right. And most importantly for him is going to be uh, is Hegel, right? So Hegel, the big philosopher, looms in the background, uh, the German philosopher of history and the challenger to traditional doctrines of God, the challenger to traditional doctor, uh, conceptions of logic, among many other things, right? All, all that Hegel represents is is the dominating intellectual force in the world at the time, including Denmark, where Kierkegaard lives. And so he is a lot of ways responding to the Romantics, responding to uh, Hegel. Okay, yeah, that puts his work on the self in context, doesn't it? We're going to come on and talk about that. Yes. We better find out, first of all, what it, what is the doctrine of um, divine immutability, the idea that God doesn't change? What is it? Mm. Why is it so important? And what did Kierkegaard think about it? Mm, we'll see in those questions right there is the whole book. We can talk I'm about sorry. I'm, no, I'm, I'm always doing this like to people. It. Just I, I, I love to... Th- Throw these big questions out. Just we just do, yeah. that's what Sorry. makes a good interviewer. So no, it's quite good. The uh, well, so the doctrine of divine immutability is uh, sometimes also called just the doctrine of divine chain of of God's changelessness, as it, as the book uses that phrase. That's the phrase that Kierkegaard uses. But same same idea. the The idea is it's that it's that doctrine that that God cannot change at all is the short working definition of it. Uh, you could flesh that out a little bit more and say God doesn't change in his, you know, in, in any sense. You could say in his character, in his will, in his uh, nature, in his relationship to time. I mean, in whatever capacity you can layer them on, God doesn't change in any of these senses. That's the traditional doctrine, and it's held pretty much from church fathers up to 
uh, and through Reformation, and then gets very much pulled into question in modern thought. And so Kierkegaard is importantly living after that's been questioned. Uh, very few people in Kierkegaard's intellectual timeline would affirm something like that complete changelessness of God doctrine that was so traditionally important. So I'll stop there. That's the that was the first question you asked was just the definition. That's the that's the definition of the doctrine. God doesn't change um, in any sense. And the, the second question was, what did Kierkegaard believe about um, the, the doctrine of divine mm. compatibility? I was going to say impassibility. I'm going to be careful. I'm going to get these two confused. Did he? Because yeah. I, yeah. I gather from reading your book that it's a bit difficult to tell what he actually did believe about the doctrine of uh, immutability. Yeah. Well, what I say is it's difficult to figure out what he thought about it because what he does is he thinks so much about how it affects us and... And so I, I say something like he's, you know, he's always asking questions about how the doctrine of mutability affects things rather than asking the what the doctrine is question. That said, you can kind of triangulate between all of his various musings on the doctrine and get the strong sense that he believes something like the classical understanding. And that's how the book launches off is that. So so as, as I read him, Kierkegaard did affirm something like God doesn't change at all. And. That's really surprising because no one, you know, very few intellectual uh, philosophers, theologians in his context would would have been with him. So he's he's swimming upstream on that. Why would that have been? Why would they not have agreed with him about this? Yeah, that's like that's a big question. I mean, Hegel's a big part of it. So um, and 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 just many of the modern philosophers at the time. And we kind of share this intuition now even. Right. So it's kind of in our minds, too, now that like change is where our lives happen, you know, like our identity unfolds and time and change and, and, and change is where the kind of rich meaning of life occurs, right? The ups and downs and the motion and the, and so there's this sense that, that maybe there's something good about change. And, and it would actually be like sad if God didn't get to experience any kind of narratival development as a character that he didn't get to grow and sort of change over time and have some sort of evolution and speaking of, evolution is in the air too, right? So there's these these concepts of change as as good things and as a part of where rich identity in life occurs. And then those just get kind of projected up and we would say, well, God must God is supremely good and the best being that there is, then 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 surely he has uh, involvement at some level of change as well. So there's just the tendency to want to see it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, James 1.17 is one of the key passages that he alludes to, isn't it? How right. does James 1.17 speak of God's changelessness? Mm -hmm. So the, the text for your listeners is the, um, you know, every good and every perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. Uh, and significantly, um, you may have, you may have caught this. Uh, I have I have a chapter in the book called "Returning Again to James 117. Uh, it's called that because Kierkegaard said um, that James 117 was his favorite biblical text. You know, he says if you could pick among them, James 117 would be my favorite, uh, the one that I return to again and again and again and always. Uh, is a quote from his journals, and so I thought. I'm going to take him seriously on that and say, if he's telling us, you know, I've returned again and again and again to this text, it's really important to me. Uh, I kind of read some of his his very complicated authorship and books and series as 
as in a lot of ways he keeps thinking about this theme of James 117, which is that God doesn't change at all. And he's trying to relate that to our lives that are constantly in flux and change. Uh, and so that text is just tremendously important to Kierkegaard. It, 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 no doubt he returned to it over and over. Mm. Uh, well, let's come on and talk about his ideas of the self, because this is where it all gets connected with the changelessness of God. Um, I wonder, before yeah. we get into these questions, I wonder to what extent, how was Kierkegaard or was Kierkegaard reacting to romantic views of the self the sorts of views espoused by, say, some of the great romantic poets like Shelley and Byron and co. Mm, sure. Or was he? Or was uh, he reacting to them? It's hard. It's it's really hard to say sometimes. So he's he's definitely in. I would say he's certainly in conversation with all of them. Uh, he would be mostly placed in the box of kind of proto existentialism uh, conceptions of the self. So I don't know that there's a there's a connection perhaps there to romantic ideas, but He's more viewed as this uh, reflexive self, like turn out, you know, go out, look back on yourself and try to think about um, these fundamental questions about your identity. Like what is uh, meaningful to you and, um, you know, does your life actually hold together and have any coherence across time? Or is it just a bunch of, you know, disparate little adventures that don't make any sense together? And what, what do you do about the problem that the anchor aspects of your life are things that might go away. And so those are really existential type questions. I, I, um, so I, he seems more motivated by, by that. Whereas uh, a romantic might kind of celebrate the inward, you know, the turn to the self and, and, and see a lot of praiseworthy and, uh, and positive things there. He, he sees despair, you know, yeah. when he turns to the self, he, he sees must, a lot of must... dark despair, anxiety and yeah. things like that. He must have been a, a decades ahead of his time, because when you say existentialism, I think of the 1920s and 1930s, and here's someone who's writing in the 1830s and 40s. Yes, right. Uh, yeah, he, he is. he's almost certainly ahead of his time on the existentialism front, which has led to precisely the reason that a lot of uh, you know Christian theologians haven't, haven't engaged him so much, is because he seems like one among many of the problematic existentialists who go who go fully you know atheistic and nihilistic with their thought and he asks a lot of the same questions as you know sartre and camus and heidegger and so forth but he's not at all like them in terms of his he has a he has a totally christian imagination behind it mm. so when he says you turn inward and you find despair he doesn't really want it to be well and that's the that's it all there is is despair he wants to say and from there you're going to turn to learn that you need to rest transparently in the one who established the self he says which is god and so there's this christian imagination that that really uh, reconstructs anything that resembles something like modern existentialism i mean it is in some ways because he's talking the same language but it's it's all theologically interpreted i think in mm. kierkegaard's case now, that's a really debated, very debated claim, but I, that's, I think, pretty obvious to me in his, in his writings. Absolutely fascinating. Well, let's get, let's get into his ideas of the self. How did um, Kierkegaard think that we, the self, how do we relate to this immutable or unchanging God, and how important is it for us as mm. people to, to relate to an immutable God? What difference does it make yeah. to us? Yeah, well, it's, uh, for Kierkegaard, the difference is, is that if there isn't an immutable God or you can't be related to him, then everything is despair. So the nihilists are right. You know, and the, and the logic there is that then there's nothing at all that is 
that is not subject to change. So everything is flux and in motion and there's nothing constant to kind of fix yourself to. And, and so it would be, it would be horribly important. You know, if you, if you don't have a relate in, in his mind, it's if you don't have some kind of relation to this immutable God, uh, then, then you are everything that your identity and sense of self and your purpose and your understanding and the future of yourself is connected to are things that are constantly moving and changing. So your identity is just this fragmented, uh, constantly changing thing. Yeah, how did Kierkegaard think that change affected us as as humans? I mean, in so many ways. One of my favorite uh, one of my favorite books of his is this novel. Uh, it's it's in the earlier chapters of my book uh, that I go over it, but it's this novel called Repetition, and it's a really interesting novel. It's not the most discussed of Kierkegaard's books, so it's kind of off the beaten path, um, and it's not where I would start if I was to pick up your first Kierkegaard book, but because uh, you're dropping into the middle of a just disorienting set of ideas. But uh, this book called Repetition is this uh, novel that takes, that follows this man. His name's Constantine Constantius. And he is trying to, he's trying to go back to Berlin. He has this lovely vacation and he wants to go back and experience it exactly again in the same way, which is a fascinating idea. Yes. Inherently ridiculous, right? To think like I had this wonderful trip and I'm going to go do it exactly again in the same way. And, but the, the, it's so important to him because he need, he wants to recreate that original feeling uh, because for him, that was kind of the height of his happiness and humanity. Right. So he, he uh, and it's obviously a ridiculous notion, but this man in the story takes us with utter seriousness and really does try, you know, and he goes and he takes the same train and he stays in the same hotel and he goes to the same shows and he's just frustrated over and over again that uh, everything has changed, he keeps saying. You know, these little things are different uh, when I show up this time. And now the experience is entirely different. And I can't I can't recreate the original emotion that I had and so on. So, on. well, that's a really silly story. But uh, and he ends up having a breakdown at the end. Right. He he goes home and his whole world has collapsed. Uh, he can't he can't make any sense of anything. Well, that's because if you kind of behind that story a little bit what he is saying is that for this man who doesn't have a relation to the mutable god he's trying to find something in this world to fix his identity to and for him it's pleasure seeking like experiences and the height of that for him was this trip to berlin and the fact that he cannot experience it the same way twice is devastating because that means that it's got a diminishing return on the uh, experiential value of it, right? And so that means basically hedonism doesn't work. Like you can't you can't generate happiness out of uh, aesthetic experiences in this life. And the reason is that change, because the second time is not the same as the first time, and the third time is even worse, and the fourth time is worse. And so this is diminishing return. So change is what's driving that whole problem, right? And we all experience that. We just don't realize how devastating it is unless you really think about it for a while. Yeah, this sounds so contemporary, doesn't it? As uh, it could have been written yeah. yesterday. Um, uh, it's very, very ecclesi- It sounds like Ecclesiastes and this whole idea of um, of change and hebel and uh, vaporousness and transitoriness Absolutely. that, that uh, right. Solomon. It's also in James, 
Yes, and, and James, yeah, I think James is picking up on Ecclesiastes, isn't he? Yeah, um, oh, so, so many questions, so many questions. What are some of the types, you mentioned the, uh, the types of despair, Kierkegaard describing despair. I wonder, what are some of the types yeah. of despair that Kierkegaard describes? Yeah, so the, the, the key book there, if you want to go really deep on, on his um, conception of despair, is his book called The Sickness Unto Death, which is essentially an extended analysis on despair. And uh, he, I, I couldn't possibly detail it all right now verbally. I wouldn't even be able to recall every detail of it. But he, in that book, he categorizes all these types of despair. You know, he thinks there's conscious forms of despair that there's there's forms that people are aware of, and then he thinks there's unconscious forms that that is a lot of people who actually are in despair, but they don't know that they're in despair. And those are people, unlike the man in repetition, who are trying to live a pleasure-seeking life, for instance. But they haven't they haven't had the breakdown that he has because they think it's going fine. But that's just because they're not reflecting seriously enough on what they're doing. So there's these unconscious forms of despair that you really have to you really have to peel behind it. He, he but in the, at the end of the day, he says all of these all of these experiences of despair are are, are just ways of realizing that you're misrelated to the one who created you. Mm. is ultimately his answer right and really ultimately underneath all that is thin he says so the second half of the book is well despair just actually is thin and really what's going on is is that sin is is at the core of our existence here and that's why we keep if you reflect on it too much you'll realize that despair is right there mm. uh and um and and so you have to kind of turn out of yourself and rest in god again so yeah and that's a short answer to what could have been we could talk about the the types of despair for a very long time, but I don't know. Oh, I think if I got into Kierkegaard, we could be t we're talking for hours. How does relating to an unchanging God then reintegrate the self, according to Kierkegaard? Mm. If we d if we yeah. naturally disintegrate as people without God, how does relating to God's unchangeableness reintegrate us? Yeah. Okay. So to uh, to answer that, I'll have to say something first about how it how it disintegrates us, uh, because then I can kind of create a parallel. So I'll just do one of the ways, but I think it's one of the one of the more sharp and clear ways. Uh, so a, a way that change disintegrates us that, that that I think Kierkegaard talks about is we think of our lives as a kind of narrative, as a story that our lives tell, at least the self is, is, is a kind of collection of memories and story uh, of yourself. So the narrative arc of your life, as we tend to think of it. And the problem there is, you know, can that narrative be coherent? Can it hold together and be a single story? Or is, or are you really a different self from, you know, a few years ago? And how, how does your life hold together, right? And so he says that the problem with like our stories, our narratives about ourselves is that every story has some, makes some aspect of finite conditions essential to that story. Right. So if you know you're a, if your identity is a podcast host, you know, well, if uh, uh, if things change such that um, that's not a, a venue anymore. Right. And you're the only podcaster left in the whole marketplace and you're just <laughs> clinging, clinging to this old media or something. Right. Uh, the, the reason you might do that is because if your identity was podcaster, then uh, the thing that you're that you absolutely need is the podcast world or whatever. Right. It's it, it always every story about your life make something essential and it could be as core as being a parent you know like my life is that i'm a father and i have two boys right and like well if that's fundamentally all that i am then 
what if that changes? The fact is that it could change. And he says, and does change because everything does change. And so then your narrative falls apart. So that's how things fall apart. Does that, um, does that help a bit? I know, I know you were asking about how things hold together and I'll, I'll, I'll speak to that if you still want to, but yes, I'll, I'll yes, say please. That no, that's that's the first part of the answer. Please, please continue. Yes, yeah. I think let's just restate the question. Where are we? Where is it? If I can find it. Oh yes. How does relating to an unchanging God reintegrate the self? Then yeah. yes. So that that's a way of how it would fall apart, and that's basically you trying to create a narrative without an immutable God. Well, one that does have an immutable God, um, a relation, a real relation to the immutable God in it. He's, he says, you know, um, he uses the theological virtues a lot to do this. So my one, one of my chapters is on what Kierkegaard makes of faith, hope, and love. Yes. Um, and so those are, if nothing else, right, ways of relating to God uh, in faith and hope and in love. And when Kierkegaard talks about those virtues, you see a lot of reintegrating of the self's fragmentation uh, language right there. And so faith, for instance, he talks about how the first, the first step in faith is to is to let go of all of the is to let go of the uh, of those conditions that were making your narrative essential and and realize that they are not things in your control and that they might change right and in some way there's this letting go of it and he uses the Abraham Isaac story to do this so he views Abraham as the hero who lets he has to let go of Isaac totally and be give him over to God as it were and then you completely throw your faith in God and now have a relation to the immutable God. And that becomes your primary, primary narrative uh, for your life. And then what's beautiful, and this is where he's so much more modern and, and, and uh, is that he doesn't stop there. Cause then he says, now, once you have had that faith, then you can re-enter the world again and actually relate in a proper way to those things and have, and have them for the first time without this kind of idolatrous holding on to them you because your identity and your life and the key things about you are are held somewhere else now um and so you don't have to fixate and hold uh, as tightly to them you can hold more loosely to things of this world uh, as gifts from god as opposed to um, necessary parts of your story mm-hmm I was going to come on and ask you. I don't know how much time we've got left. Maybe five minutes. You, you. I'd loved your section on the on the the three virtues and the the business of the loves reminded me very much of C.S. Lewis. How how can our loves be disordered, according to Kierkegaard? Then, just in a couple mm. of minutes. Yeah. Well, if you're what what he what he uh, there's a lot on Kierkegaard on love, but. What what I drew a lot of attention to was one way that it would be disordered in the kind of context we're talking about here is is if your love if your primary love that drives everything else about your life is something finite and changeable, then 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 as a result of that, your love for that thing and your love for all things that kind of pours out of that thing will be constantly subject to change, and so they'll be conditional in a lot of cases, right? Like I I might love uh, do I love my children because because they're providing me the sort of identity as father that I need so much, or uh, that that's a disordered kind of love because the 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 love is located in like this vicious kind of need that I have and and um, identity stability project that I'm trying to undertake. Whereas if if it's if if your love is directed towards the unchanging God, then you receive back and say I'm actually loving my children because he because he unchangeably commands me to do so 
and that that kind of stabilizes my habits and loves and things like that Mm -hmm. so yeah it's it's just if you love something changeable as the primary thing everything's going to be like held uh uh, held up for grabs because of that. You know, and yeah, yeah. My very last question was going to be to ask you how Kierkegaard's writings help us articulate a biblical doctrine of God's changelessness today, but I think mm. you've probably already answered that right throughout the interview. I hope so, yeah. I mean, I, I hope that w- what he's done for me, uh, just to kind of pull all those threads together, is to say that uh, the doctrine of divine immutability is is absolutely true, I, I believe. Uh, but so often in the in the Bible, I think, in, in James 1.17 especially, it's not a changelessness about just how God is different from us and just so philosophically kind of cold. In the Bible, it's always this positive thing, like like it's such a good thing for us that God doesn't change. And not, you know, not only does he doesn't change, but he's the, you know, the giver of every good and perfect gift in James. And so there's this, there's this positiveness to it. And uh, but the way that we articulate the doctrine typically doesn't have that aspect as forefronted. It's there maybe, but it's kind of in the background. And in Kierkegaard, it's just right at the front. But I think that that, is, uh, that, that, that draws attention to real biblical themes about how changelessness actually works, works on our behalf, that it's something we, we need and desire as human beings and creatures, you know, that, that are looking for rest somewhere in this world and that we kind of long for a relation to something fixed and stable. And, and so there's a really positive, uh, preachy kind of side to this that I think is there in the Bible and Kierkegaard drew attention to it for me. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. Yes, absolutely fascinating. I'm, I'm, I've been very grateful for the time that we've had, Craig. It's been fa- yeah. fabulous. Thank you so much. Uh, if we're going to start, if we have people listening who want to say, like me, yes. who want to say, where do we start with Kierkegaard? What's what's a good mm. what's a good place to start? Uh, so uh, probably every Kierkegaard or scholar would have, have their own thoughts, but for me, I, I would start with the um, the eighteen upbuilding discourses. It's a series of almost sermon like little texts so these short little chapters they kind of stand alone and they're very um you know he has pseudonyms and so he writes in these pseudonym names all the time and that creates a lot of layers of complexity with how to read him uh, and those are great works too mm-hmm. but the uh 18 outbuilding discourses are written in his name they're very specifically christian they're oftentimes a reflection on a specific biblical text and so if you're if you're entering from the perspective of christian theology and trying to think about think about Kierkegaard in that way that that that's where I would start and then branch out branch out from there well it sounds like there's plenty to get into thank you so much Craig Hefner and Craig's new book from InterVarsity Press IVP America is called Kierkegaard and the Changelessness of God absolutely fascinating thank you Craig so much for your time and thanks to our creative thank you and thanks to our creative we didn't even have a chance to talk about the future of podcasting uh, that, yeah. Well, yeah, we that came, another day for you. That came up in your discussion, and I thought well, I'm going to be replaced by artificial intelligence any day now. Uh, yeah, that's but right. I hope uh, your identity is not too locked no, up. No, it's not. No, I mean, this is about the third <laughs> incarnation of the third incarnation of or view of of broadcast. I mean, when I started in radio in 1991, 32 mm. years ago, we was in New Zealand. We were still using reel-to-reel tape. And wow. vinyl records, and I, my producer used to have to clean vinyl LPs on a record cleaning machine. The second, mm. the second time I was in radio was about uh, 
that was about five years after that, and I, uh, I was in England, and suddenly we had digital editing, and everything was digital, mm. so you could splice right. interviews really easily. In the old days, you have to uh, you had to yeah. physically cut the tape. And then yeah, right. uh, the third, this third incarnation is podcasting, and we've got Zoom, and we've got and hey, it's fantastic. Oh, it's so great! It's I am grateful I didn't have to. We didn't have to fly to New Zealand to be able to no. It, and talk. It, well, in the in the old days, you used in the old days you used to do uh, if it was an interview in the states, it, it was either phone yeah. on the phone or oh, it was sure. a very early form of uh, a very early form of Skype, I think. Uh, fifteen oh, right. years, about okay. ten fifteen years ago, and when people told okay. me about Zoom, I said, "Hooray! That's the technology I've always been waiting for." Oh, I'm sure it is. Well, and then on, the, on your end too, it's everybody on this end is is custom to Zoom and knows how it works, and yeah, um, you're not having to train everybody up on it. That's great. That's, That's awesome. So it changes. So uh, I mean, yeah. I, I I don't know what what's the future of of radio of media. I don't know. It's certainly going to be overtaken by AI. I would have thought, but that, that's a discussion for another day. Uh, thank you, and thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Craig, thank you so much. Thank you, Brent, so much for taking the time and for great questions. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> we really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.